Hi, this is Sam. And this is Anuel. And this is Murderous Intention. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey guys, so a little update. Um, I know Brianna's case, uh, we're on the trial for one of the officers. Um, I'm waiting for more updates, but I know the trial is still ongoing when it comes to him. So once I get an, get an update and a verdict on that one, I would definitely let you guys know what happened with that case. Um, and like I said, uh, for you, Last week's case about Lawrence Smithfield, um, any information you have or know, um, I would definitely say, you know, call the police, um, contact them and find out, you know, maybe that tip or that moment of memory or whatever may help that case. Um, and now leading to the month of March. So, the month of March, we are going to do the, I call that, as I call it, um, March Madness. Um, and it's just because the cases we're going to do are sickening, are gruesome, are OMG, what the heck did you get this case from moments. Um, yeah. But they're all not going to be. From the U.S., they are all pertaining to places outside of the United States. Um, An international player. Yes, it's gonna be international. It's gonna be. You know what? I'm I'm not gonna take up any more time because I okay. know and you all gave me a briefing, and it seems like it's gonna be a very devouring. Um. Carnegie <laughs> sewage <laughs> type of story. Um, if you do hear a little growls or a little noises, there is a new puppy for our murderous intention mascot. Um, just so guys, that you guys have an, a happy version to the madness that we do. Yeah. Um, and when you're ready, go ahead, take it off. Okay, so um, my first warning or disclaimer is I hope you had breakfast before uh, and I hope you just didn't finish eating because, um, yeah, this is going to get gruesome. I'm going to give you very little background um, because there's so much information on him that it could take an episode or two just on his background. So I'm not doing that. We are talking about today Dennis Andrew Nielsen, a Scottish serial killer. 
Um, Dennis Andrew Nielsen was born on the 23rd of November, 1945 in Fraserburg, Aberdeenshire. The second of three children born to Elizabeth Dothy White and Olive Magnus Mokisho, who was adopted the surname Nielsen. Uh, Mauritian was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of a Pre-Norwegian forces following the German occupation of Norway. After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May of 1942. The newlyweds moved into her parents' house. In 1950, in uh, so there's so much more about that, but I'm not. I'm not gonna. Like I said, it, it's a rabbit hole that I don't want to get into. Yeah. Um, more important information about what I perceive to be part of the what kind of turned Andrew, um, excuse me, Dennis, um, in, 19, in 1951, Nielsen's grandfather on his mother's side, um, his health started to decline. Mm -hmm. um, but he continued to work because it just began, you know, it, it just started. On the 31st of October, 1951, while fishing in the North Sea, he died of a heart attack at the age of 50, uh, 62, excuse me. His body was brought ashore and returned to the White family home prior to burial. And while Nielsen later described as his most vivid childhood recollection, his mother weeping, asking him whether he wanted to see his grandfather. When he replied that he did, he was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin. As Nielsen gazed upon the body, his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping, adding that he had gone to a better place. Um, Nielsen was a quiet yet adventurous child. His earliest childhood memories of, of, of family picnics in the Scottish Port side with his mother and siblings of his grand, um, grandparents' pious lifestyle. And of being taken in, on long countryside walks carried on the shoulders of his maternal grandfather to whom he was particularly close. Olive Jr. and Sylvia occasionally accompanied Dennis and his grandfather on these walks. Despite only being five years old, Nathan vividly recalls these walks as being very long, along the harbor, across the wide stretch of beach, up the sand dunes, which rise 30 feet above the beach. Um, he later described this stage of his childhood as one of, of contentment and his grandfather being his great hero and protector, adding that whenever his grandfather, who was a fisherman, was at sea, life would be empty for me until he returned. Um, in the years following the death of his grandfather, Nielsen became more quiet and withdrawn, often standing alone at the harbor, at the harbor watching the herring boats. On the onset of puberty, Nielsen described he was gay, which initially confused and shamed him. He kept his sexuality hidden from family and his few friends because many of the boys to whom he was attracted had facial features similar to those of his younger sister, Sylvia. On occasion, he sexually fondled her, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. Nielsen made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers to whom he was sexually attracted, 
although he later said he had been founded by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. On one occasion, he also caressed and founded the body of his older brother as he slept. As a result of this, Olive Jr. began to suspect that his brother was gay and re regularly belittled him in public, referring to Dennis as hen, Scottish dialect for girls. Nielsen initially believed that he was fondling his sister, his sister um, may have evidence of, of him being bisexual. Um, so I, when I, I, and I'm going to reference a um, Netflix show or movie, it was about an hour and a half, a little less. Um, it's called Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen tape, um, where he was, when his mother told him, do you want to see him? And he said, yeah, and he attributed it. So he, he told them when his mother told him, um, your grandfather's sleeping, he went to a better place. His response to that was, grandpa used to take me everywhere. Why didn't he take me to this better place? Which I gathered to be where his attraction for love and death got mixed. He, he, he mixed them up. Right. Okay. Um, between 1978 and 1983, Nielsen is known to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys and to have um, attempted to kill seven others. He initially confessed in 1983 to having killed about 16 victims. The majority of Nielsen's victims were homeless or gay men. Others were heterosexual people he typically met in bars on public transport or on, on one occasion outside his own home. All of Nielsen's murders were committed inside the two North London addresses where he resided in the years he is known to have killed. His victims were lured to these addresses through guile, typically the offer of alcohol and or shelter. Um, inside Nielsen's home, the victims were usually given food and alcohol, then strangled, typically with the ligature, whether um, excuse me, either to death or to uh, they became unconscious. If the victim had been strangled into unconsciousness, Nielsen then drowned him in his bathtub, a sink, or a bucket of water before observing a ritual in which he bathed, clothed, and retained the bodies inside his residence for several weeks, or occasionally months before he dismembered them. Each victim killed between 1978 and 1981, and his Cricklewood residence was disposed of via burning upon a bonfire. Prior to this, prior to the dissection, Nielsen removed their internal organs, which he disposed of either beside the fence behind his flat or close to a glass stone park. The victims killed in 1982 and 1983 at his Muswell Hill residence were retained at his flat or apartment. Yeah. With their flesh and smaller bones flushed down the laboratory. Nielsen admitted to engaging in masturbation as he viewed the new bodies 
of several of his victims and to have engaged in sexual acts with six of his victims' bodies, but was adamant that he had never penetrated any of his victims. So he the got turned on. It was 195 Melrose Avenue. I'm sorry. So he was turned on by his murders. Right. That's where I'm thinking he, he, he confused love and death as being the same. You because yeah. yeah so you 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 see more of it later on because he didn't like he didn't penetrate any of them, but he was in love with the bodies and he took care of the bodies, which is kind of weird. But, yeah. Um. Nielsen killed his first his first victim, fourteen year old Stephen Holmes, on the thirtieth of December, nineteen seventy eight. Holmes encountered Nielsen in a Cricklewood Arms pub where Holmes had occasionally attempted to purchase alcohol. According to Nielsen, he had been drinking heavily alone on the day he met Holmes before deciding in the evening that he must at all costs leave his flat and seek company. Nielsen invited Holmes to his house with the promise of two of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music, but leaving him to be approximately 17 years old. He was not. He was 14. Um, and Nielsen's home, both he and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. <clears throat> the following morning, Nielsen awoke to find the sleeping Holmes beside him on his bed. In his subsequent written confession, confessions, excuse me, Nielsen stated he was afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping news, Nielsen decided Holmes was to stay with me over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Reaching for a necktie, Nielsen straddled Holmes as he strangled him into unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. Nielsen then washed the body in his bathtub being placed, uh, before placing Holmes on his bed <clears throat> and caressing his body. He twice masturbated over the body before awaiting the passing of rigor mortis to enable him to stow the corpses beneath his floorboard. I, I just all I'm all I'm picturing is this little child being killed for. A stupid reason. Yeah. You know. It's ridiculous. Holmes bond court um corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months before Nielsen built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on the eleventh of August nineteen seventy eight. He said, I eased him know. into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt stained used up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was clear white. His limbs were more relaxed than what I had put him down there. Nielsen's written recollection of the, of the ritual he observed after the murder 
of his first victim. Reflecting on his killing spree in 1983, Nielsen stated that having killed Holmes, I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime, adding that he had started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. On the 11th of October, 1979, Nielsen attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, which he had met in St. Martin Lane Hub and Lord Ted Flat at the promise of sex. Nielsen attempted to strangle Ho, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to police. Nielsen was questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho decided not to press charges. And that in that Netflix show, they said that um, he threw himself through the through a window, had about a hundred stitches. That's when he survived. The police that were called um, tried to get his parents to get him to you know press charges. Yeah, and they, they told him, "My son will not be doing that." We have to remember that in 1980, in 1970 and 1980, being homosexual was not the thing. And it's, like, it's, it's the thing okay. is that even in, and sorry for cutting you off, but even in, um, still in Asia, homosexuality still has this, um, a stereotype to it. So if you're right. gay, it's kind of like you're shunned upon, you know? Exactly right. So that's why his parents told him, told the, the police officer, um, which I will go. I'm going to go back a little bit. He served in. He served with this police officer. He was a cop. He was um, part of the Scotland um, Scotland Yard Police. Mm -hmm. um, and this detective that came to this particular case worked with him. They worked together. Before that, he was in the army and all that. Like I said, yeah. you could go down the rabbit hole if you look at if you look into his faces. Um, but anyway, he never pressed charges. So the guy told him, "You know how lucky you are. You could have been out to jail for the rest of your life and not probably even killed." So um, two months after the attempted murder of Ho on December, um, excuse me, on the third of December, nineteen seventy-nine. Nielsen encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ackenden, who had been on tour of England visiting relatives. Nielsen encountered Ackenden as they both drank in a Western pub. Upon learning the young man was a tourist, Nielsen offered to show Ackenden several London landmarks and offer which Ackenden accepted. Nielsen then invited the student to his house on the promise of a meal and further drink. The pair stopped at an off-license en route to Nielsen's residence and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer. With Akira insisting on sharing the bill, Nielsen was adamant he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Akira. He recalled that he strangled the young man with the cord of Nielsen's headphones as Akira listened to music. He also recalled dragging Arkadin across his floor with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him. Before pouring himself a half, half a glass of rum and continued to listen to music on the headphones, 
with which he has strangled Akadun with. The following day, Nielsen purchased a Polaroid camera and, and photographed Akadun's body in various suggestive positions. He then laid Akadun's corpse great eagle above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboard. On approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, Nielsen disinterred Akron's body from beneath his floorboard and seated the body upon his armchair along, along him as he himself watched television and drank alcohol. Nielsen killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on the 17th, um, 17th of May, 1980. Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead, Merseyside, Merseyside, who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge on the 13th of May, after being questioned by the British Transport Police for raiding his train fare. For four days, Duffy had slept rough near Eastern Railway Station before Nielsen encountered the youth as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Duffy, Nielsen recollected, was both exhausted and hungry and happily accepted Nielsen's offer of a meal on a, on a bed for the evening, and a bed, excuse me, and a bed for the evening. After the youth had fallen asleep in Nielsen's bed, Nielsen fashioned a ligature around his neck then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest and tightened the ligature with great force. Nielsen held the grip until Duffy became unconscious. He then dragged the youth into his kitchen and jogged him in the sink before bathing, bathing with the body, which he recollected as being the youngest looking I had ever seen. Duffy's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed on which he had been strangled. The body was repeatedly kissed, complimented and caressed by Nielsen, both before and after he had masturbated while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. For two days, Duffy's body was stowed in a, in a cupboard before Nielsen noted signs of bloating. Therefore, he went straight under the floorboards, Nielsen said. Following Duffy's murder, Nielsen began to kill with increasingly increasing frequency. Before the end of 1980, he killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one and one other. Only one of these victims whom Nielsen murdered, 26-year-old William Sutherland, has ever been identified. Nielsen's recollection of the unidentified victim was vague, but he graphically recalled how each victim had been murdered and how each, excuse me, and just how long the body had been retained before dissection. One unidentified victim killed in November had moved his legs in a cycling motion as he was strangled. Nielsen is known to have been to have absented himself from work between the 11th and 18th of November, likely due to the, these particular murders. Another unidentified victim Nielsen has successful, unsuccessfully attempted to resuscitate before sinking to his knees and sobbing before standing to express respect at his own image as he looked at himself in the mirror. On another occasion, he had lain in bed alongside the body for an unidentified victim as he listened to the classical theme, Fanfare for the Common Man, before bursting into tears. Inevitably, 
the accumulated bodies beneath Nielsen's floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odor. Particularly throughout summer months, on occasions when Nielsen disinterred victims from beneath the floorboards, he noted that the bodies were covered with pulpay and infested with maggots. Some victims' heads had maggots crawling out of eye sockets and mouths. Yeah, disgusting. He placed deodorants beneath the floorboards and sprayed insecticide, insecticide yeah. about the flat twice daily, but the odor of decay and the presence of um, flies remained. In late 1980, Nielsen removed and they dissected the bodies of each victim killed since December 1979 and burned them upon a communal bonfire he had constructed on waste ground behind his flat. To disguise the smell of the burning flesh of the six dissected bodies placed upon the, the fire, the pile, excuse me, Nielsen crowned the bonfire with an old car tire. Three neighborhood children stood to watch this particular bonfire, and Nielsen later wrote in his memoirs that he felt it would have seemed in order if he had seen these three children dancing around a mass funeral pile. When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinders, Nielsen used a rake to search the debris for any recognizable bones. Noting his skull was still intact, he smashed it into pieces with his rake. I can only relate to a dead image of the person I could, I could love. The image of my dead grandfather would be the model of him and at his most striking in my mind. It seems necess necessary for them to have been dead in order that I could express those feelings, which were the feelings I, ha I held sacred for my grandfather. It was a pseudo-sexual, infantile love which had, yet, had not yet developed and matured. The sight of them, my victims, brought me a bitter sweetness and a temporary peace and fulfillment. Extracted from your uh, prison journals, written while I remind on April 1983. That's where I get the thing that he's confusing love and death as one. Yeah. As one thing. He intertwined them mentally. Mentally, right. Um, I know about the 4th of January 1981, Nielsen encountered an unidentified man whom he described for investigators with an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scott at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. After Nielsen and his victim had consumed several beverages, Nielsen shangled him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Nielsen is known to have informed his employees he was ill and unable to attend work on the 12th of January in order that he could dissect both the victim and another unidentified victim he had killed approximately one month earlier. By April, Nielsen had killed two further unidentified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square. The other he described as Belfast Boy, a man in his early 20s, approximately 5 feet 9 inches, whom he had murdered sometime in February. In relation to the first of these three unidentified victims, he later casually reflected 
end of the day, end of the drink, end of the person, uh, end of a person. Uh, I'm, I got a question. How did he not get fired for taking all these days off? Yeah, I don't know. And yeah, I don't know. Because his, 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 uh, his work history or his absences were mediocre at best, they said. And it's just like, I know nowadays, if you take that many days off, you're fired. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm just... For sure. I guess he got um, away with things. Huh? I said, I guess he got away with things. Yeah. Um, floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. The fire, uh, This is what he was... I guess he was... He has said or put in his journal. The following month, Nielsen removed the internal organs of several victims so beneath the, beneath his floorboard. He discarded these inwards both upon the waste ground behind his flat and his and in his household rubbish. And if I remember correctly, that's garbage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow. Whom Nielsen discovered slumped against a wall outside his home on the 17th of September, 1981. When Nielsen inquired as to Barlow's welfare, he was informed that medica the medication Barlow was prescribed by his epilepsy had caused his legs to weaken. Nielsen suggested that Barlow sh should be in a hospital and, and supporting him, walked him into his residence before phoning for an ambulance. The following day, Barlow was released from the hospital and returned to Nielsen's home, apparently to thank him. He was invited in, and after eating a meal, began drinking rum and coke before falling asleep on the sofa. Mm -hmm. Nielsen manually strangled Barlow as he slept, before stowing his body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning. I'm not comfortable with that. See, I knew it. Um, with what it's like he's a little backwards at time like there's certain things he says that makes me remember <laughs> like um sorry about that you must you must <laughs> yes sorry about that <laughs> um and now my other ones are like what's going on <laughs> Shh. um so my thing is it's like in certain moments he has like a Jeffy Dunham moments where yeah. he he can only love and show love to a dead corpse. And I'm like, okay. Do we ever do that case yet? What? By the way? No, we, we haven't. We haven't, but we're gonna do it. Stop jumping the loops. <laughs> now it's when I was thinking international, I looked him up because he came up with the, with 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 him and a couple other ones that I won't mention. And then I'm like, oh, I'm like, ah, oh, he's from the United States. I can't do him yep. this month. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe next month. Maybe next month we could go gory. <laughs> um, no promises. No promise. <laughs> that that's a serious case. That's honestly like a really get down and deep. But, um, 
he has that 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 thing where it's like I can only show you love and yeah that's where you more so see like what you were saying where he's intertwining love and death in the mix of each other you know and it's just yeah it's like it's sad like I want to feel sorry for him but then I'm like no you're killing people for no damn reason you know Excuse me. In mid-1981, Nielsen's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Nielsen to vacate the property. Nielsen was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted an offer of a thousand pounds from the landlord to vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat at 23D Cronley Grounds in the Mashwell Hill District of North London on the 5th of October, 1981. The day, the day before he vacated the property, Nielsen burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims he had killed at his address upon a third and final bonfire he constructed in the garden behind his flat. Again, Nielsen ensured the bonfire was crowned with an old car tire to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Nielsen had already dissected the bodies of four of these victims in January and August and needed only to complete the dissection of Barlow for the third bonfire. Now we're going to the second address. So before we go to the second address, okay. in this last bonfire, he had five bodies he had to burn. Mm-hmm. Because the because the landlord wanted a vacant so he could he could renovate the building. He's making my eye hurt. I'm just saying that. He's making my eye hurt. I feel like the twitch is coming in. I told you. Hold on to your seat before we came on. My seat is a rolling one. I can't hold on. <laughs> hey, and by the way, I blame you. You called it March Madness, not me. So you want mad Mar- um, March-, March Madness? I got you some. True. He met up. Now I got I gotta beat your expectation. Your uh, yeah. Uh, damn. Good luck. <laughs> That's all I think. Good luck. Okay. So at 23 Cranley Gardens, Nielsen had no access to a garden. And as he resided in an attic flat, he was unable to store any bodies beneath his floorboard. For almost two months, any acquaintance Nielsen encountered at Lord's Head Flat were not assaulted in any manner, although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Knobs on the 23rd of November, 1981. But he stopped himself from completing the act. In March, 1982, Nielsen encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking at a pub near Leicester Square. I hope I said that right. Howlett was lured to Nielsen's flat on the promise of continuing drinking with Nielsen. Mm-hmm. There, both Nielsen and Howlett drank as they watched a film before Howlett walked into Nielsen's front room and fell asleep in his bed, which is located in the front room at this time. One hour later, Nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to rouse Howlett and sat at the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at Howlett before deciding to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle in which Howlett himself attempted to strangle his attacker, Nielsen strangled Hallett into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room 
shaken, shaken from the stress of the struggle in which he had believed he would be overpowered. On three occasions over the following 10 minutes, Nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to kill this victim after noting he had resumed breathing before deciding to fill his bathtub with water and drown him. For over a week following Hallett's murder, Nielsen's own neck bore the victim's finger, finger impression. How did he explain that away? I'm sorry? So how does he explain that part away? Yeah, I don't know. I got rowdy with a chick. Yeah. <laughs> Rub sex. I, I don't know. <laughs> OMG. Just, just thinking out loud. I don't know. Anyway, continuing on. In May 1982, Nielsen encountered Carl Stoddard, a 21-year-old gay man, as the young man drank at the Black Cap Pub in Camden. Nielsen engaged Stoddard in conversation, discovering he was depressed following a failed relationship. After applying him with alcohol, Nielsen invited Stoddard to, the, to his flat, assuring his guests he had no intention of sexual activity at the flat. Started consuming the alcohol before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. He later worked to find himself being shangled with Nielsen loudly whispering, stay still. In his subsequent testimony at Nielsen's trial, Stardust stated that he initially believed Nielsen was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. We then regularly recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and then Nielsen was attempting to drown him. After, after briefly succeeding in raising his head above the water, Strider gasped with the words, no more, please, no more. Before Nielsen again submerged Strider head beneath the water. Believing he had killed Strider, Nielsen seated the youth in his armchair. Then noted his mongrel dog, Sleep licking Strada's face, Nielsen realized that the tiniest thread of life still clung in the youth. He rubbed Strada's limbs and heart to increase the condition, covered the youth's body in blankets, and laid him upon his bed. When Strada regained consciousness, Neil embraced him. He then explained to, to Strada he had almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and that he had resuscitated him. Over the following two days, Strider repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. When Strider had regained enough strength to question Nielsen as to his recollection of being strangled and immersed in cold water, Nielsen explained he had become caught in the zipper of the sleeping bag following a nightmare and that he had placed him in cold water as you were in shock. Nielsen then led Strider to a nearby rail station where he informed the young guy he hoped they might meet again before he bade him farewell. I would never go back there ever, 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 ever again. <laughs> Wait, but my thing is, why would you, why would you put somebody in cold water if they're in shock? Wait. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, three months after Nielsen, Nielsen's June 1982 promotion to the position. Now listen to this. Okay. He was promoted to the position of executive officer in his appointment, 
And he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen attempting to hail a taxi in Shatterbury uh, Avenue. Um, so, what? How is he still getting promotions in any company when his absences are way more than the time that he actually works? Like they called him mediocre at best. I have no idea. Being honest. I'm just like, you should have been fired by now. A long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah. Um, Alan accepted Nielsen's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal. As had been the case with several previous victims, Nielsen stated he could not recall the precise moment he had strangled Alan, but recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with the, with the full intention of murdering him. Allen's body was retained in the, in the bathtub for a total of three days before Nielsen began the task of dissecting his body upon the kitchen floor. Nielsen in again, is again known to have informed his employer he was ill and un unable to attend work on the 9th of October, 1982, likely in order that he could complete the dissection of Allen's body. On January, on the, excuse me, on the 26th of January, 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by, by acquaintances in the company of Nielsen, walking in the direction of a tube station um, at Nielsen's flat. Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stutter in an armchair as Nielsen sat listening to his black opera, Tommy. Nielsen approached Sinclair knelt be before him and said to himself, oh, Stephen, here I go again, before strangling Sinclair with a ligature constructed with a necktie and a rope. Nothing, uh, noting crepe bandages upon each of Sinclair's wrists, Nielsen removed these to discover several deep slash marks from where Sinclair had recently tried to kill himself. Following his usual ritual bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, uh, talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead youth. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him before kissing the youth's body on the forehead and saying, good night, Stephen. Nielsen then fell asleep alongside the body, as had been the case with both Paula and Alan. Sinclair's body was sub subsequently dissected with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the cell. The bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nielsen had found upon Sinclair's wrists. Uh, Sinclair's wrists, excuse me. Nielsen attempted to dispose of the flesh internal organs and smaller bones of the three victims killed at Crowley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down his toilet. That's not not. not. Uh. Guys, just so you can't see her, but Miss Samantha is grossed out. She's done. I'm not grossed out. I'm just like, how stupid can you be? Oh, okay. My bad. Because it's like, first of all, anybody knows about sewage, the, the pipe is not that big 
leaving from your toilet to the main um sewage line. You know, it's not a big thing. Which is yeah. why it's only meant to, you know, occupy certain fecal matter, you yeah. know? Um, right. And they always say, don't throw diapers, don't throw sanitary wipes, don't throw, you know, um, paper towel, things that cannot disintegrate. So, right. so we're going to put a body or pieces of a body into the... <sighs> it's just okay. it, it's like what why dude why yeah and you, you'll find out what happens in a minute oh also um in a practice which he had conducted upon several victims killed at Melrose avenue he also boiled the heads hands and feet to remove the flesh of these sections of the victim's body on the 4th of February, 1983, Nielsen wrote a letter of complaint. Listen to this. <laughs> he wrote a letter of complaint to a state agent complaining to the estate agent, complaining that the drains at Crowley Gardens were blocked and that the situation for both himself and other tenants at the, at the property were intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property the reason being, he had begun to dismember Sinclair's body on the floor of his kitchen. So you call for help because your 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 drain is your your, your sink and stuff is not draining. But when they come to check it out, you can't come in here. Don't come in here. No, 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 no. Um. First of all, but why would you call? Why would you put attraction to yourself? Right. Especially, you're not done with your your job. Right, you still have a body laying on your kitchen floor right now. What are you doing? Like, make the complaint afterwards, after you're done with that. There's no evidence coming back to you. Okay. So now, we're going to get into the discovery and what, what they actually found. Oh, my God. Newton's murders were first discovered by a dino rod employee. Rhoda, Ruder, anybody that, those kind of people, for us here in the United States. Um, Michael Crittin, who responded to the plumbing complaints made by both Nielsen and other tenants at Crowley Gardens on the 8th of February, 1983, opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Katrin discovered that the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin. Contra reported his suspicion to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler, as Contra had arrived at the property at dusk. He had he and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Nielsen and fellow tenant Jim Alcock convened with Contra to discuss the sources of the substance. Upon hearing Contran exclaim how similar the substance was in appearance to human flesh, Nielsen replied, it looks to me like someone had been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> At 7.30 a.m., sorry, I'm laughing because, it, like, you know what you did, you dumb idiot. So I have to laugh. Um, at 7.30 a.m., the following day, so 
by sundown they left because it's getting dark. They're not gonna be able to see, you know, see anything. Yeah. Kanchan and Wheeler returned to Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder who cleared it. <laughs> Okay, so at least he was smart enough to clear the whole. Yeah, just that area that was packed with what he called Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay. First of all, who would throw away their Kentucky Fried Chicken? Huh? Who would throw away their Kentucky Fried Chicken? Like, even the bones you throw in the garbage, not in the toilet. Exactly. Right, yeah. So this aroused the suspicion of both men, uh, of both the men. Hutchin discovered some scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain, which linked to the top flat of the house. To both Hutchin and Willard, the bones looked as if they were originated from a human hand. Both men immediately called the police, who, upon close inspection, discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked to be. Look to the naked eye like either human or animal flesh in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsey, where pathologist David Bowen advised police that the remains were human and that one particular piece of flesh he um, he concluded had been from a human neck or a a ligature mark. Done. He's done. Why are you touching your neck, by the way? What are you doing? (gasps) Anyway, let's continue. Okay. (laughs) Upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor flat from from where the human remains had been left belonged to Nielsen, Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Nielsen returned home from work. When Nielsen returned home, DCI Jay introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining that they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drain from his flat. Nielsen asked why the police were interested in his drain and also whether or not the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Nielsen that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Nielsen into his flat, where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Nielsen questioned further as to why the police were interested in his drains, to which he was informed the blockage had been caused by human remains. Nielsen feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, good grief, how awful. In response, Jay replied, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Nielsen responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe, um, wardrobe, from which DCI Jay and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition emanated. The officers did not open the cupboard, but asked Nielsen whether there were any other body parts to be found, to which Nielsen replied, it's a long story. It goes way back. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here at the, at the police station. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder 
before being taken to Hosni police station, where en route to the police station, Nielsen was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out of the, win out of the window of the police car, he replied, 15 or 16 since 1978. That evening, why are you covering your head? Anyway, I, I got to stop looking at her. Let me look at these notes. <laughs> it's just like, dude, like, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but why are you confessing to all this? Like, what? He's caught. He's done. I would he, just say caught. it was that one person. Not 15. <laughs> Or 16. Don't forget all 16. Or 16. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. God. Okay, so that evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers accompanied DCIJ and Bowen to Crowley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hosni Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been virtually um, dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head, and a torso with arms attached. Both hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subject to moist uh, moist heat. So in an interview conducted on the February, Nielsen confessed there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room with other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bedroom. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, using, uh, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he knew as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in December 1979, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Nielsen also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or on one occasion had been at the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to live, leave his residence. Excuse me. A further search for additional remains at Crowley Gardens on the 10th, on the 10th of February revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom and a skull, a section of a torso, and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nielsen accompanied uh, police to Melrose Avenue, where he indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he had buried the remains, the remains of his victims. Perchard contacted the Daily Mirror on the 10th of February, informing the newspaper of the ongoing search for human remains at Crowley Gardens. Leading, to, leading the newspaper to break the story and spark interest national media, excuse me, and spark intense national media interest. By the 11th of February, reporters from the Mirror had obtained photographs of Nielsen's mother in Aberdeenshire, Aberdeenshire, excuse me, which appeared on their front page the following day. Under English law, the police had 48 hours in which to charge Nielsen or release him, assembling the remains of the victims killed at Crowley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey Mortuary. Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints 
on one body Maestro's on police files of Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on the 11th of February, Nielsen was charged with Sinclair's murder and a statement revealing that he was released to the press. Formal questioning of Nielsen began the same, that same evening. With Nielsen agreeing to be represented by a solicitor, a facility he had earlier declined, police interviewed Nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days in interviews which totaled over 30 hours. Nielsen was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you would tell me that when asked his motive for the murders. He was adamant that the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Most victims had died by strangulation on several occasions. He had drowned the victims once they had been strangled into unconsciousness. Once the victims had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from the torso to confirm it was um, conform it to his physical ideal, then apply makeup to any obvious blemish upon the skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants before Nielsen draped the victims around him as he talked to the corpse. Um, with, most, with most victims, Nielsen masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body, and Nielsen confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercural sex with his victims' bodies. Um, but repeatedly stressed to investigate, he had never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. Um, so I'm going to go straight to formal charges. Okay. So it's, it's just like, can I just say, besides this is like crazy, um, but I'm sorry, you're, you're going to say you had intercourse you you masturbated but you never went and did further you never penetrated i i can't i can't buy that story you know i think he's also into necrophilia and he just doesn't want to admit it um yeah the, the what I found as the title was uh, Dennis Andrew Nielsen, a Scottish serial killer and necrophile. So, necrophilia. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I don't, don't want to be right. That means where you you get aroused by dead bodies. Ah, uh, okay. And that's what makes you It's like when you see a pretty girl, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, ooh, you know? And then when they start doing yeah. the lovely things, you're like, ooh. But for someone who has necrophilia, um, it's more of you're basically dead. And it's not where, like, lying dead, like, playing that you're dead, but actually... No, you have to be dead dead. Yeah. Um, there are some people that actually... Um, have them the thing where they'll they'll have their partner immerse in ice 
um, just to kind of get close to that feeling of necro. Um, but that doesn't always work for them. Just saying. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, the, the, the special was kind of long and I cut it short because we kind of go, he tell, he says everything. He tells them every single detail. Um, and it's kind of like uh, me saying it, it's kind of repeating it over and over again. So, you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, but formal charges. Mm -hmm. On the 11th of February, with the murder of Stephen Sinclair, it was shepherd to HMT Brixton to be held on remand for his trial, until his trial. According to Nielsen, upon being shepherd to Brixton prison for a child, his mood was one of resignation and relief. With, um, with his belief being that he would be viewed in accordance with law as innocent until proven guilty, he objected to wearing a prison uniform while on remand and to wear a prison uniform and what he interpreted to be breaches of prison rules. Excuse me. Nielsen threatened to protest against his remand conditions by refusing to wear any clothes as a result of this threat. He was not allowed to leave his cell. On the 1st of August, Nielsen threw the contents of his chamber pot out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. This is a result of Nielsen being found guilty on the 9th of August of assaulting prison officers and subsequently spending 56 days in solitary confinement. On the 26th of May, Nielsen was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two of attempted murder. A six-month charge was later added. Throughout this com um, committal hearing, he was represented by a solicitor named Ronald Moss, whom he had previously dismissed as his legal representation on the 21st of April, before Moss was reappointed to the role after Nielsen had complained to magistrates that he had been afforded no facilities with which he could mount his own defense. Moss was to remain Nielsen's legal representative excuse me, until July 1983, when Nielsen, again expressing his intention to defend himself, discharged him until the 5th of August, when Nielsen once again reappointed Moss. But he's playing a little game. Yeah. I appoint you, now you got, and now you fired, now I appoint you again, now you fired again, and I'll appoint you again. Yeah, it's just a drag, drag it along. Right. Um, initially, Nielsen intended to plead guilty to each charge of murder at his upcoming trial. With Nielsen's full consent, Moss had fully prepared his defense. Five weeks before his trial, Nielsen again dismissed Moss and often said to represent to be represented uh, by Ralph Hahint, upon which advised Nielsen agreed to plead not guilty by diminished responsibility. How, how do you plead not guilty because of diminished responsibility? When you confess to everything already. I don't get some of these guys. Like, you know, you said you did it. Just, you know, man up. You did it. Yeah. Now just get it over with. Save people that agony of having to live through a trial. Right. Yeah. 
But you know what I also found out, and I'm not trying to drag everything further, but a lot of murderers, because now they're caught, they want to live one last memory um, of it. And so they'll say not that they're not guilty and request a trial so they can hear their crimes again, relive it as it's being spoken. So that way they have that constant gratification, if you want to put it that word. It kind yeah. of turns them on, don't it? Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so now, Charlie Sentence. Nielsen was born on trial on the 24th of October, 1983. Um, charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried um, at the Old Bay before Mr. Justice Chrome Townsend and pleaded not guilty to on all charges. The primary dispute between the prosecution and defense counsel was not whether Nielsen had killed the victim, but his state of mind before and during the killing. Prosecuting counsel Alan Green QC argued that Nielsen was sane in full control of his actions and had killed with premeditation. The defense counsel Ivan Lawrence QC argued that Nielsen suffers from immense responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and should therefore be convicted only of manslaughter. The prosecution counsel opened the case for the Crown by describing the events of February 1983 leading to the identification of human remains in the drains at Crowley Gardens and Nielsen's subsequent arrest. The discovery of the three different member bodies in his property, his detailed confession, his leading investigators to the charred bone fragments of 12 further victims killed at Melrose Avenue, and the efforts in, he had taken to conceal his crime. In a tactful reference to the primary dispute between the party counsel and the child, Green closed his opening speech with the, with the answer Nielsen had given to police in response to a question as to whether he needed to kill. He said, at this precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I am right in doing the act. To counteract the argument, Green added, the crowd says that even if there was mental abnormality, there was not sufficient to diminish subsequently his responsibility for these killings. The first witness to testify for the prosecution was Douglas Stewart, who testified that in November 1980, he had fallen asleep in a chair um, to rectify his ankles down to a chair and Nielsen strangling him with a tie as he pressed um, his knees to Stewart's chest. And I'm not gonna. I'm gonna cut it short because we're gonna go all over it again, which I don't like. Um, sure. So, following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defense, the jury retired and considered the verdict on the third of November, nineteen eighty-three. The following day, the jury returned with the majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one of attempted murder with the unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Nats. Combe Johnson sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. Okay. Not enough, exactly. 
No. But, you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get, right? Right. Okay, so following his, uh, his conviction, Nielsen was transferred to HMP Wormwood Scrubs to begin his sentence. As a Category A prisoner, he was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates. Nielsen did not lodge an appeal, um, accepting that the Crown's case that he had had the capacity to control his actions and that he had killed with premeditation was essentially correct. He further elaborated on the day of the conviction that he took an enormous thrill from the social seduction, the getting the friend back, the decision to kill, the body, and its disposal. Nielsen also claimed drunkenness was the sole reason at least two of his attempted murders were unsuccessful. In December 1993, Nielsen was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade by an inmate named Albert Moffat, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Afterward, he was briefly transferred to HMP Parkhurst before being transferred to HMP Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, Nielsen was transferred to an unit at HMP for Sutton. Upon concerns of his safety, he remained there until 1993, when he was transferred to HMP Whitmore, again as a Category A prisoner, and with increased segregation from other inmates. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which Nielsen was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life tariff by home security um, excuse me, Home Secretary Michael Howard in December 1995. Uh, excuse me, December 1994. So they upgraded it from 25 years to his whole life. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. This ruling ensured Nielsen would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. In 2013, in, two, oh, in 2003, excuse me, Nielsen was again transferred to HMP Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, Nielsen translated books into Braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who saw his correspondence. Nielsen remained at HM Full Southern until his death in May 2018. So lastly, his death the 10th of May 2018, Nielsen was taken from HMP Full Sutton to York Hospital after complaining of fierce, um, severe stomach pains. He was found to have a ruptured abdominal erotic aneurysm, which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered from a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. Nielsen died on the 12th of May. A, a subsequent postmortem examination revealed that the immediate cause of Nielsen's death was pulmonary embolism and retroperial, I don't know how to say that word, hemorrhaging. Wow. Nielsen's body was cremated in June 2018. The service was held with only five mourners present, including three prison officers and the individual with whom Nielsen had, Nielsen had corresponded with while in prison. No family members were present at the service. In line with Ministry, Ministry of Justice 
of these HMP full time paid £3,223 towards the cost of Nielsen's funeral. His ashes were later handed to his family. Um, before I hand it back to you, the eight identified out of 15 or 16 that Nielsen killed um, were Graham Allen, 27, Malcolm Barlow, 23, Martin Duffy, 16, Stephen Holmes, 14, John Howlett, 23, Kenneth Ockenden, 23, Stephen Sinclair, 20, William Sutherland, 26. And if you, for all the, you know, if you want to see more about it, hear more about it, the name of the show is Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen Tapes on Netflix. Yeah. Now you can tell me what you think about this whole crazy case, if you want. Um... This this was a March Madness. Like it had you like what the French. Um it reminded me of um like a little bit of Donham. Um but the thing was Donham Donham didn't want his his victims to be dead. He just wanted them to be kinda like zombie like. Where they're there, but not there. So, like, in certain aspects, I saw the Donham case going in. Um, but then it was just, like, it took a whole nother turn. It took the wrong turn. Let's just say that. Um, I personally think, as I'm being a mom myself, his mom should never let him see the grandfather that young being dead i think that's where everything stemmed from um and that's where like you said earlier and you said repeatedly throughout the podcast um that's where his conscience and his understanding of what love and death is got intertwined and no one tried to kind of like explain to him that there's a difference you know um on on that note being honest i i can honestly say i was pretty shocked about like all the madness that and i know i'm saying madness too much but all this, all the craziness that happened, it's an insane, yeah. and it's like, and I kind of want to say, in his first prop, the first property and the second property, no one smelled the decomposing bodies. Like, you know, I'm just like, how is it no one smelled this and reported it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> But that's being honest. That's all I really have to say because I'm just. Yeah. I'm. A, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you it. You got me on this one. I. I'm just like. Uh, oh. I can't say much now. But if you, you guys. Know, and I mean, it was longer. It could have been way longer. It could have been two, three. But I wasn't gonna. You know. And, I, and you know how I am. I'm like, oh, this case is gonna be really bad. 
let me, I want to try to get, get it done. And that's why I was repeating my, not, not repeating myself, but cutting stuff out as I was reading. I'm like, oh no, we're going to go through it again. I don't, I don't want to be reminded of it. You know, yeah. what the survivors were saying happened to No, you know, here's, here's the Netflix show. You want to see what, everything that happened, go ahead. You know, have fun with yeah. it. But I just want to show you and tell you what it was. I'm happy I found it because it was a case that we really haven't really got into as far as all this mayhem that he did. And we really didn't deal with the case that he, that somebody just killed young men and home, you know, mainly were homeless. Most of them were homeless coming, coming for a better life in London. And he, he showed up. That was True. the end of their life after that. Yeah. Most of them. Um, also, you know, um, if you guys got, you know, you guys want to voice your opinion or let us know how you feel or you want to, you know, participate and say, hey, can I hear about, you know, this case, um, you know, and you're, you're not in the U.S. or even if you're in the U.S. and there's a case you want to hear about, you want more details about, um, definitely email us at murderousintentions21 at gmail.com or you can send us an Instagram message or put it into our comments with the picture for this podcast episode at murderous underscore intentions underscore podcast as always you can always tweet us at mi true cry podcast I almost forgot it for a moment (laughs) Well, guys, this has been a long one, but a very roller coaster driven. Yeah, I, I don't know what else yeah. to say. <laughs> hey, yeah, but yeah. we'll see you guys next week with how I'm gonna top this one. I'm not sure how, but she, she's not going to. That's how she's gonna do it by not doing it. You know what? More so, I'm gonna look for the most gruesomest one, the one yes, that's gonna make you what say, "What the hell?" That's what I want. Top it. All right, I'm going in. I'm gonna try to top this one. Okay. All right, guys. <laughs> Bye, guys. See you next week. <laughs>